Welcome to this episode of In Our Tracks, a podcast produced by the National Reining Horse Association. In this episode, we're going to talk to Tim and Colleen McQuay, who really need no introduction in this in this group. Um, everybody knows who they are and the, the impact that they've had on this sport. Welcome to In Our Tracks, a project from the National Reining Horse Association. We're here to honor the history of reining, discuss current events and trends, and look ahead at the opportunities this sport has in its future. We'll honor the legacy makers, movers, and shakers from the reining industry, as well as grassroots competitors and weekend warriors to offer insights from the full spectrum of the reining community. Um, so let's start out with a few quick fire questions for you guys. When you're on the road traveling to a horse show, what's your favorite food to have in the truck? Well, we're lucky enough not to have drive to drive too much, so <laughs> we don't really have a favorite food. Maybe on the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> what do you take on a plane with you? Her. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen brings the snacks. <laughs> Certainly, we we have driven a lot of miles in our life for sure, and we always have good intentions to have the apples and bananas, but ends up end up with Chex Mix and things like that sometimes. But uh, now we're on the airplanes more than in the trucks. Yep. Right on. Um, what do you like to listen to when you're on an airplane? Are you Do you read a book or do you listen to music? What do you like to do? Oh, well, most of the time we'll try to download a movie and watch a movie while we're there. Yeah. But the airplanes let you do whatever you need to do. Sometimes I work on the airplane with, you know, my iPad and uh, sometimes just watch a movie, sometimes read. Depends on where I'm going and what job I have when I get there. <laughs> right. You sleep if it's an early enough yeah. flight, right? <laughs> but I do like to listen to country music. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Tell me about, just first pops in your mind, favorite horse you've ever ridden. Well, it, it might get to be a little too long. I don't know what to tell you because I've ridden a lot of very nice horses in my time. So, you know, my... The one that strikes mainly in my heart is Dunnett, because he was the first one that I was reserve champion in the fraternity on him and won the derby and won the super stakes when we had the super stakes yet. And and then, you know, he kind of helped make our life. We got to breed a lot of mares to him. He, we moved to Texas mainly because of him. It was a little much easier to get mares to Texas to breed than it was to Minnesota. So he's definitely a spot in my heart. Does he share a spot for you too? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, when you think about what's the best horse, of course he has to come first that Tim rode and we kind of all learned and grew up with him over a 20 year period. So it's hard not to start with him, but wow, Tim's had a lot of really good horses. Really Absolutely. good horses. A lot by him, by Shining Spark, Shining Spark himself. And, and then, and then we were fortunate enough to get Gunner, which I never got to ride him as far as a show horse, but you know, he's he I mean, we had a, a inkling that he would breed a lot of mares, but we surely didn't have the where what we ended up doing with his colts and all that stuff, it just way above what my mind can even comprehend. I bet. What uh, is your favorite trait in a horse? I like to feel a lot of natural stuff. 
I feel like I could train them to do most everything else, but the stopping, it's no matter what you do, raining is a stopping contest. And if you got the stop, you can get the rest. You hope you can get the rest anyway. Right. What about you, Colleen, as far as with your experience? I mean, you obviously have a, a long history with horses as well. What's your favorite? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to identify the stopping maneuver as being a high importance with the reining horses, but no matter what horse you have, they have to have a good mind and, and a good heart because that's the only way you can teach them, really. It's the only way you can develop them to be your team player. So, you know, it, natural physical ability for sure, but they have to have the mind and heart to go along with it. What is the most common advice you have given to non-pro riders um, in your career right before they go show? I, you know, I always tell them, look, don't be in a hurry. It's your pen for five minutes or four minutes, whatever it takes. It's your pen. You do what you feel confident doing. And, and, you know, I'll give them advice on this horse or that horse to stop and roll back or take your time in doing things, starting your turnarounds and stuff like that. But the biggest thing is, is trying to get them to get their mind slowed down to just be able to think through the whole pattern. Right. And Colleen, what about before like Mandy would go show or what, what kind of advice do you like to give? You know, the biggest thing, like Tim says, is to get people to take their time and to separate the maneuvers. And in, in both reining and the hunters and jumpers, I find that you have to teach people to react. Riding is reacting. I mean, we all go with a plan A, but you need to be able to react and shift to plan B because sometimes plan B will still get you a piece of the pie. So if there is an area that you worry about going into the ring, my belief is you, you bring that into your prep. You know, you remind them this is likely to happen. It, he might drop his shoulder there. He might try to get ahead of you there. And then they're thinking about that process and it becomes more of the plan instead of outside the box of your plan. Great. No, no surprises. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and you'll have enough of those in the pen anyway. Anyway. Yeah. You know, that's... And most of the time, I don't think horses are doing things to people because they're planning on doing this to them. It just happens out there. You just have... You have it happen. <laughs> you know, you drag a lead. You don't plan to, but pick up, fix it. Don't don't just keep kicking, you know, stuff like that. It just is part of horse showing. Absolutely. I think I want to know, and a lot of people would like to know, what was it like to have the Hollywood Dunnett influence in your life and the Gunner influence? What were they like in the barn? Um, what were they like, you know, like to be around? Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about that? Hollywood Dunnett, he had a lot of feel. It was a little bit study as far as, I mean, he might lean on the wall or squeal at a horse if they came by more in the older years than he was as a young horse because he was in training and he respected you. So he was, he was thinking about you, but you know, he was a pet in the barn too. Yeah, you know, we kept him right in the front of our barn where everybody could walk in and see him in an open fronted stall kind of. And, and 
He was very pleasant to have around it. And people enjoyed coming to see him because he'd come up to the front of the stall and he didn't try to bite him or chew on him or anything. He, he just said hi and give me a treat or pet me or something. When, when, we, when he was young, so were we. I mean, right. we were just kind of going with the flow. And really, we had no idea how good he was in the beginning or how easy he was to train and until you grow and you get the experience of they're not all as nice as he is. But he was always a people kind of horse. He never was a problem with, with people at all. And, and even in his older years when he was just breeding, he just had little rules like, I'm going to be fussy about what horse is next to me. And so that's the only time he'd push on the wall or something if he didn't like a horse that we put in next to him. Mm -hmm. So then we just found out who he liked and kept him there. Yeah, yeah. It was easy. And he would get upset if he didn't go to the breeding barn first and only get upset by a little colicky acting almost. So, you know, you figured out his little traits and he also took a nap every afternoon. <laughs> the first time I saw it happen, I that I was, you know, aware, he's kind of circling in his stall and he's pulling up the bedding and I thought, oh great, he's colicking. And I'm watching him because my desk was right across from his stall and he just kind of lays down like a little puppy dog and he's fine. And then we realized he just... He did that every day. He just piled up his bedding and took a nap in the afternoon. So when you have a horse that long, that close to you, mm-hmm. you just learn. You just learn so much about him. And uh, and then when we did breed him, I mean, he'd be the first one we'd collect. It would take you the time. By the time you walk down there and back, that's about it. He <laughs> yeah. collected that easy. It, and he spoiled us because his semen, we could breed 14, 15 mares per collection. When we first got to Texas, Texas, our vet was so surprised how good and how easy done it was to collect, to manage and collect. And you could just lead him with a halter and he'd go down there and do his job and come right back to the barn. And there was just no... No problem anywhere. You know, there's a lot of studs that are sensitive and have a huge set of rules and aren't as potent and all of the above. We we were just so lucky, so blessed with and, that horse. And dumb. Yeah, we didn't <laughs> I mean, even know how good we had it until later on. Yeah. And and Gunner was Gunner was a very nice horse to have around. He was a little more um it took us a little while to make friends with him. He wasn't mean or hungry, but he'd just soon stand over there and... Well, he just didn't know us and didn't know our lifestyle and wasn't used to open front barns and the activity. And and it just took him a little while to feel at home. He didn't do anything wrong, but he was just a little bit This wasn't quiet, as friendly. You know? yeah. But, but then, then... Yeah, just he, like done it. They get used to the tours and people coming and taking pictures and my dad with started it with done it and then finished it with with gunner giving the tours and giving treats and taking all the pictures and all that stuff so gunner got to be the same way then did you i mean have any idea in your mind with you know these horses that they would become the huge influence that they are and no i, I mean 
having those horses in our life was uh, a blessing. We, you know, you you have a you have a good feel to be around horses and know. Yeah, I like to be around Dunnett and I like to be around Gunner, but <clears throat> I mean, to this day, I don't know if a horse has produced horses to finish first and second in the Open for Thirty. The only one I know of is Gunner, and. You know, that was just unbelievable. We were lucky enough before we bought Gunner ourselves, Sloan sent us, well, we bought a real nice horse from him by Gunner that I was fifth in the fraternity on. And uh, and then Kim sent us a couple horses for training. So I had a feel like they were, they were natural stoppers. So we had a good feeling about that. And then... Kim said, we want to sell our horse and would, we would love to see you guys have him. <clears throat> so we were pretty lucky that way. I don't, I think you have to remember that one, especially with Donut, but even with Gunner, the industry was really still developing. It, there were a few in the generation ahead of us that we tried to learn from and watch and recognize the importance of the mares and all of the above, but it was still the breeding part of the reining industry was still fine tuning itself, still developing and tracking all the history and all of that. So we were, we were lucky to not only get in on the ground floor, but to get in with horses like Dunnett and, and Gunner. I don't think anybody could project the impact of a stallion or a mare for that matter. And, and we were, we were lucky in in the ways, in my opinion, that Tim had such a good feel for those horses. He knew Hollywood Jack, Hollywood Dunnett's sire, and had ridden a lot of siblings of Dunnett. So, and I I sort of think Tim had a has a sixth sense about that. So, I mean, that was certainly fortunate. But when you look at the success of those stallions, you have to look at the whole picture. I mean, every mare owner and everybody that rode those horses or continues to ride those horses has a tremendous effect on their success. But like Tim said, when you look at the impact of those two horses, I mean, they're almost everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> they're almost everywhere. And then up to and including even at the run for the million. Yeah. Okay, so let's move a little bit away from the breeding side of things and um, a little bit on the training side. What horsemen and horsewomen did you admire when you were um, growing in your career? And and what do you think of the what the new generation, younger generation of horsemen are, are doing now? Well, I was fortunate enough to see Bob Loomis, Bill Horn, Bob Anthony, all of those guys. John Hoyt. You know, yeah, all of those guys come through our careers. And, you know, I went to a clinic in River Falls, Wisconsin, that Bob Anthony was doing. And I went over and rode in it and all that stuff. And I said, if you get, if you can come to our place when you're done. And he came and spent 10 days there. And I learned a lot of his show techniques and stuff like that, that he, put on his horses and you know, it was just one more great start. And then Bob Loomis, it'll step back to the breeding. You know, Bob won the ring for 36 times. 
yes, it was before it was as big as it is now, but but his he's the one that probably took the breeding part of reining horses to the next step just because he was buying nice mares to breed to his stallions more than any of the other people were really doing. Bill Horn bred some, but he didn't push like Bob Loomis did. But, you know, showing behind all them guys, you learn lots of little things that that make you try to be that good. I think, you know, the fact that we did in the early days, we did the quarter shows and needed right. to do that in addition. And so you learn different parts of just good horsemanship, Western riding, just good horsemanship. And But even the English part of it, there's still an overlap of education that is just so valuable. And then, of course, I think both of us learn by helping other people, because I think as you teach people, you learn a system or methods that help people, which in turn help the horse. So, you know, we we had a lot of, I think, good mentors, maybe more just by watching and trying to learn by watching the training sessions and showing, et cetera, than we were able to actually go and live with them or spend time with them like today. But you just have to take advantage of the of the generation ahead of you and and try to learn by watching even if you can't sit there and listen to them. Yeah, I think that you see a lot of that too in, in the younger professionals coming up. And so many of you guys are helping them, you know, coaching them almost and consulting on their horses. And um, it's it's a huge asset. You know, and I, I know Bob Anthony, Bob Lewis, Bill Horn didn't do clinics like they would do because Bill was a man that rode his own way by his seat of his, his pants. His own he way. could feel what he wanted. And he could feel what he could feel what that horse was going to do next. And he just did it. He, he, you know, you, I had a friend ask him how, how this lead change, how you do this lead change. He said, well, you just ride up there and you do this and then you go the other way. Well, <laughs> You know, if only it was that easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think Ken Eppers showed me some little things that boosted my whole career quite a bit. Well, I think going back to the to the, to the very horse beginning, because yeah. we had to do Western riding and mm -hmm. horsemanship, and so the lead change things. You know, Tim won in the Western riding as well in those days, and so. You know, we were forced into having to learn a lot because we had to make a living. It's not like today where people could just specialize in what they love. You know, we're, we're one year by the time we finished the Congress, Congress with 40 horses, oh, we said, mm, we're going to start doing just the hunters and jumpers and just the reining. And but but all those years, I think, helped us develop our program and helped us learn how to develop horses that and I more think, people can ride. I think some of that stuff helped change some of the reining industry, mm -hmm. too. Because I was, you know, I remember watching some of the old videos and stuff, and they were trotting into their lead departures and stuff like that. And I had enough savvy to go teach them to lope off nice and pretty quick then we had to lope off better and but it was really it was really the non-pros that made us hone in on that because 
they didn't have his feel. And I, I'm like, Tim, you, you've got to teach these horses a canter departure because the amateurs, the non-pros don't have his feel as to when's the right time you can just turn and go or step off and, and get the right lead. So it kind of goes back to what I said, how when you teach people, you learn more of how to teach the horses. Absolutely. Things you have to have on the horses. Yeah. And it, that probably comes to selling horses and oh, all yeah, of everything. So tell me about one mistake that you've learned from that at the time, it probably wasn't a mistake you wanted to make, but it really helped you see things in a different way or you learned from. Business-wise, I, I wish we would have saved more money or bought more real estate. Well, and I think but, that's great advice for the yeah, young professionals. Yeah, I mean, we invested everything we had into horses for 35 years. I mean, and it, and it wasn't just and, for us. We had Mandy. Yeah. And we were <laughs> we were always taking care of Mandy. If, if, you know, we wanted her to be mounted, so we'd spend their money and do that. You know? but, luckily, <laughs> but luckily, I mean, we did do the real estate investments and and certainly um am, am glad we did doing the horse business is is a hard um it's hard to save money because the overhead is gigantic and if you don't invest in yourself in horses you're at risk of not having horses to show or horses to sell and so we always juggled those balls, I think, from start to finish. How many mares do we own? How many babies do we keep? It's that's a that's a big question in this business. And I, I think we could have done a little better job, but it turned out pretty pretty okay for us. If I were to ask um, your customers to describe each of you in one word, how do you think they would describe you and why? Well, I I ask David Silva, I said, David, if you had to describe me in one word, what would you say? He said, patience, oh, you know, yeah. patience. Yeah, I, I mean, truly, they would describe him as the nice, easygoing guy with a lot of patience and me, not so much. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the, the, yeah. the hard one. <laughs> yeah, I'm the one that's always pushing the envelope and trying to organize and trying to have some foresight into what's the future of our industry. And That's an important balance to have though. Well, and, and he does too. I mean, he's got a lot of foresight. He's just not as uh, ambitious or pushy as I might be. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good balance. But I think everybody has to have somebody in their program that does the organizing and... And, and she, the best part about Colleen is if I, if I was showing a horse or had a run and, and she would, and even if it was a 225 or whatever, say you could be a little slower here or, to, <laughs> or just think a little bit more about this or that, or, you know, she was, she was my critic. Yeah. So you respect her as a horsewoman yeah. as well as your, your business partner. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and there, I, there was a time when, there really wasn't anybody else for Tim to, I mean, he visited with his friends, of course, but mm -hmm. there was a time when not too many people were going to say, what are you thinking? I think you need to do this instead of that. You know, I, I guess maybe I was his biggest critic in that respect, but, uh, but obviously still his biggest supporter. And from, from 
I was at one time the young guy coming up right in Bob and Bill and in their footsteps and I was starting to beat them and they didn't necessarily like that so well. <laughs> most, of the, most of the time us old guys don't like the young guys to, to beat us but but and especially during that day because it was a much smaller pool right so it was more more evident and and things were shifting in the industry more from the east coast to the midwest to the west and so there was a lot of changes happening during the, that era in the reining horse industry but we survived it <laughs> yeah um what's something about your life outside of reining that people might not know about you um what do you like to do besides horses or do you get to do anything besides horses because often there's not time <laughs> yeah well good luck on that one because he doesn't want to do anything but reining horses and never yeah. has i mean no vacations no nothing outside the box just ride reining horses yeah that's it and yeah. i'm not much further behind i mean between the reining horses and the the hunters and jumpers i'm not one that could go lay on the beach for two weeks either but, you know, the sad part is we're kind of boring. <laughs> it's not boring. It's passion. It's really focused passion. You know, I, I, I told somebody yesterday, I said, <clears throat> I would be at this horse show thinking, I can't hardly wait to get home and ride the two-year-old and get them more. Now, <clears throat> in this era, we are lucky enough to have much better aged events to go to. When we began... When the fraternity was over, the Derby paid 6500 to win. You know, it wasn't something that you saved horses for. Now it's become not... Big, big changes. I yeah, mean, very big changes. Very nice aged events to go to now. So, and the, and the customers like going to them and enjoy them. So you don't worry about selling them so fast. Well, and speaking of the aged events and how they've developed... And, you know, some recent changes like adding the seven-year-olds into the derbies. And what are some of the changes that you're seeing that you're most excited about? For, for me, I love that we're focusing more and more on older horses for all the obvious reasons. You know, it's, we expect a lot out of our two and three-year-olds. And like Tim said way back when, there wasn't enough for the older horses. And... It was a transition period that I think we helped change because we started the NRBC. They did at the NRHA did add the five year olds, but we added the six year olds, and then we added the seven year olds. And of course, Tim and I helped with the development of the FEI and and, and that part of our game. So I think it's all been a really good um, progression of our sport. And it gives, I think David Silva really was the one that recommended to us to add the six-year-olds because to the NRBC, because he's a breeder that cares a lot about his horses, focuses a lot on the game. And sometimes the horses have to have some time off. And by giving them their six-year-old year, you can do that as three and four-year-olds and still have some good events to take them to. So I think that has been a big big plus in our industry and it helps us develop the horses easier and more um just more compatible for the non-pros as well and the youth and i don't, and i think 
I don't think the seven-year-old part's going to help the open division as much. Okay. But I think it's going to make a, one more year for the non-pros to keep a nice horse and go. Because they don't have to go mark the 26s and 7s right. that the open horses have to. Well, and what I'm hoping it might do is encourage the owners to, to keep their horses in training with the professionals a little longer. Let them show them as a four-year-old, maybe even as a five-year-old, which is, it just makes them better horses, more trained, and they they don't have to experience non-pros and youths quite as young. So, and of course not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, it's better for the horses. And it just gives them just more time to have one rider and one job and still give the non-pros a good opportunity in the aged events. Um, let's shift over to something that you guys participated in that's super unique and new and um, The Last Cowboy. And how, how, how was that for you all to even be on the sidelines watching um, Tom and Mandy and Kate in it and being you know in, around for the TV show and then the run for a million? Is that anything that you ever thought this industry would have? Is it something that was ever on your radar? I think we have to thank Taylor so much for what he has done for that it's it is unbelievable that we would have a million dollar added ring it just well under those circumstances with 12 invited etc i mean no there again again there's no way to predict that something like that would ever happen i mean we have strived for tv coverage and and achieved some here and there, but nothing like what Taylor Sheridan has done for the NRHA. We're, we're lucky that he came into our sport and, and then that he used his vision and talent and ability to do what he did. The fact that, that our family was involved certainly was a lot of fun. I, I have to admit, I was so surprised that people would watch a reality show. The viewership show was huge. Called, you know, The Last Cowboy. Um, I wasn't around a lot during the filming because of, of my other business, but during the NRBC, it was really fun to get to meet the crew and, and see how they work and, and and meet some of the actors. And again, surprising, very surprising, and very surprising how many people across the country that very remotely know us checked in and said, wow, this is so fun. We're watching this. and. I think a lot of people really, really enjoyed it too. It was not only a tremendous promotion for the sport, but it was fun for people to get involved in. And I think um, showing the family aspect and how these horses really bring you know people together, and I, I think that was just yeah. really neat for people to see too. Yeah, it it they did a, a great job. I mean, I thought they did a really good job of depicting who the people are and what they're like, and and. Um, I mean, even when Carly broke her collarbone, I couldn't believe that they they were there and they just happened to catch all that stuff. And 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 really, that is part of every day, what we do and who we are. So I, I thought they were tremendous, just tremendous. I'll be anxious to see what's ahead. So you guys already have this a really strong legacy for your business and your success with horses. What... Is there anything left to do? Is there anything on the list that that you'd still like to check off? No, I think we've, I mean, I'm always trying to find that next superstar and 
all that kind of stuff. But I mean, we were pretty fulfilled. Carly loves to ride the Rainers, but she's totally enthralled with riding jumping horses. And so that's a whole nother step that we got to go help Carly get that done too. For me, I think we're just, I don't know that we're ever done. I mean, we're, you know, there, there isn't some big looming thing there that we have, we feel we need to achieve. I mean, as we speak, we're talking about looking at a new formula for how the fraternity runs in the future. I have some ideas for that and been trying to vet them with the people here this year. So, you know, we've always been a part of the development of the NRHA right. and, and, the, and the events, et cetera. And, and sometimes they weren't so happy with us about <laughs> that. Sometimes not so happy, but again, sometimes, you know, um, we all have to learn by with growing pains. But, but I feel that I, I think in any, in any business or certainly in the horse business, you have to keep track of the, the generation ahead of you as you continue to maintain and develop the current business. And so, you know, like I said, I feel like we have to embrace the things that have changed in the last several years regarding the breeding and regarding the amount of horse shows that are happening and the entries, et cetera. We have to embrace that and continue to be creative about what our potential is as NRHA producers. And so probably Tim and I will always be involved in that end. Hopefully they'll wanna open that door for us to do that or keep the door open for us to do that. But but otherwise I know the biggest thing right now is just concentrating on the grandkids and what their uh, opportunity is. and. Not so much on how to make them the winners in, in the industries as much as just good people that can enjoy their sport. I mean, they, they love the horses. And Kate is, he, he, I have five stick horses hanging in my garage. When he could walk, he was riding stick horses. And he is 24-7 rainers, totally devoted. And lucky lucky us that our kids like horses the way they do carly is very she really loves horses she's very compassionate maybe not as aggressive as as mandy and and kate but definitely loves it and i hope we can you know help her with that passion as well thanks for listening to in our tracks a project from the national Rating horse association for more about reining and NRHA, visit NRHA.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook at NRHA National Reining Horse Association and on Instagram at NRHA Reining. <laughs>